Welcome to the audio podcast of North River Church. You can find out more about North River and ways you can be involved at our website, gonorthriver.org. I invite you to grab your copy of God's Word. Join me in Matthew chapter 1 this morning, Matthew chapter 1. When she was living, my grandmother was our family's resident historian. She loved our nation's history, and she loved our own family history. Uh, And before there was ancestor DNA and all that that was easy to do online, she took the time to research all the way back to our ancestors that came over when the country was founded. And so if you would ever sit down with her and have a conversation with her, for whatever reason, it always went in that direction. Didn't matter what we were talking about. It didn't matter what was going on. She'd say, Michael, did you know that our ancestor fought with George Washington? I said, no, I didn't know that, Nanny. Oh, let me tell you the story. And she could sit there for hours on end and tell story after story after story of the people that make up my family in the past. And, you know, as a teenager, that was not cool. Now, as an adult, I wish I could sit down with her and hear those stories. You know, it's interesting that when we come to Christmas, I don't think the first place we would go most often is Matthew chapter 1. Maybe the second part of Matthew chapter 1 that we'll look at on Christmas Eve, but not the first part of Matthew chapter 1. In fact, the first part of Matthew chapter 1 is nothing more than a genealogy. Ancestor DNA Bible times. That's really what it is. It's simply a list of names of people who begot people who begot people, but The interesting thing as you watch the stories weave together is that the end of the story finds its culmination in Jesus. And so in all the brokenness that we find in the genealogy, we find beauty. In all of the mess that goes on, we find the message of the gospel, we find Jesus. And so if you will indulge me a bit this morning, we're going to work through the genealogy of Jesus from Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to do it in such a way where we focus in on five unlikely characters that we find in Jesus' genealogy. In fact, five women that we find in Jesus' genealogy. So I want to read for us. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. If you've always wanted to know a name to name your child, here's a list of possibilities that you could work through this morning. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amenadab, 
and Amenadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. There's a good one for you. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Father, we ask this morning that as we open your word, you would open our eyes that we'd be able to see, that you would open our ears that we would be able to hear, and that you would open our hearts and our minds that we would be ready to respond to your word and to your spirit. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. You know, it's funny when you read through the scriptures, that it's not entirely unrealistic to come to a genealogy and just say, I'm going to skip that, right? Maybe in your Bible reading plan, you kind of got to that and you thought, probably not anything in there really worth noting. And yet, if we believe what God says about his word, every single passage of Scripture is inspired by Him and is profitable for us so that we can grow in godliness. So when we come to a genealogy like we find in Matthew chapter 1, we know that the trajectory that it's taking is to explain where Jesus came from in the earthly sense, in His earthly mom and His earthly dad, and yet what we see in this is, I believe, for us this morning, one of the most beautiful pictures of how amazing the gospel of Jesus Christ really is. Because if you know much about the names of these ladies, if you know much about their story, and we're going to walk through them together this morning, their stories are scandalous. Their stories are not pretty. They're not very beautiful. In fact, you could look at them and say that it's horrible. Much of what went on in their lives. Some of it self-inflicted. Some of it their own sin. Oftentimes, though, the sin of others and they were in the midst of it as 
bystanders in this. And yet, God at work in their lives and in history to bring about His Son, Jesus Christ, through their lineage. So if you're taking notes this morning, I want you to write down this main idea because it will frame our time together this morning. And then I want to give you the names. Maybe if you missed them as we were reading through all of those, I'm going to give you the names and then we're going to walk back through and look at each of their story. So here's the main idea this morning. The gospel message is beautifully scandalous. The gospel message is beautifully scandalous. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians would say that the message of the gospel is the great scandal. The fact that Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, came to this earth as a baby. The king of the universe who was part of creation being spoken into existence takes the form of a baby, comes to this earth, takes on humanity, lives among his people. In fact, if you look at it, it's a scandalous story and it unravels throughout history beginning from Abraham on in much scandal. So let's look beginning at the first lady who's mentioned in verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. So if you're taking notes this morning, write the word Tamar down. If you're wanting to know where she finds herself in the story of Scripture, you can look at Genesis chapter 38. If you were around when we were working through Genesis, we covered Genesis chapter 38. And I told you at the outset, it is the Jerry Springer chapter of the Bible. It really is. It is an absolutely scandalous story. So Tamar is married, but her husband is an ungodly man. Her father-in-law is Judah, and if you know Jesus, comes from the line of the tribe of Judah. But Tamar is married to this wicked man, and the Bible tells us that God kills him. God takes him out. And so... It was the duty of his brother to marry Tamar and to raise up children for his dead brother's name. But he decides, I'm not interested in doing that. And so God takes him out as well. So then you have Tamar, who's twice widowed, who has no offspring to perpetuate her husband's name. And she sits back and says to her father-in-law, I'll wait until your youngest son is old enough and then we'll marry. He looks at her and thinks, not going to happen. I've lost two sons because of you. I'm not going to lose the third. And so he refuses to give this third son to her. So Tamar dresses herself as a prostitute and catches him in a vulnerable moment and propositions him and says to, I'll do this for for a small price, and he doesn't have anything with which to pay her, so he says to her, I'll give you my staff and my signet and my identification, basically. She says, fine. 
comes out a few months later that she's pregnant by her father-in-law. She knows. He doesn't. Now just pause for a second and think. How in the world does someone like that find their way into Jesus' genealogy? You think, I mean, like wouldn't you go a different route if you're God? Let's bypass this story, this situation, this scandalous action. And yet, the beauty in the message of the gospel is that God doesn't bypass. You say, okay, that one's pretty rough. Let's look at the second lady who's mentioned in verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. We encounter Rahab in Joshua chapter 2. As God's people are going in to take over the land of Canaan, they come to the city of Jericho. They look and recognize that Jericho has a great wall that's built around it. They send spies in to spy out and to figure out what way can we go in and can we take over this city. And the spies find themselves in Rahab, who's referred to as a harlot, in her home. And the governing authorities are looking for these spies that Israel has sent in, and she hides the spies. And it's amazing the story that transpires as a result of that, because she says to the spies, I know that God, we have heard about him. And I know that he is protecting his people, the Israelites, and I know that you will come in and you will overtake our land. And so I'm going to hide you, but I ask of you to save me when it comes time to take the city. And so they make the promise to her. They say, yes, that's exactly what we'll do. And so Rahab sends them off on their way after the spies have been hidden long enough, and the time comes for God's people to come in and to take over Jericho. And Rahab and her family are saved as a result of the promise that was made to her. So just in your mind, if you're taking notes, just keep those two stories, Tamar and an ancestral relationship, Rahab a harlot. We keep going here and we see a lady named Ruth. Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. It's easy to find the story of Ruth. There's an entire book in the Old Testament about Ruth's story. In fact, what we read in that book is that Ruth is a Moabite who were arch enemies of God's people, and so she would have been considered by the Israelites a foreigner, not one of God's people. And yet there was a famine in Bethlehem, and so Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, took their two sons and they moved to Moab because there was no food in Bethlehem. And it just so happened that they stayed there long enough that the boys grew up and they looked for wives and they married two Moabite wives, which for Israel was a forbidden thing to do. 
And yet, as a result, we meet Ruth. And Ruth's story is an amazing story. It's a story of tragedy because both of the sons die, and so Ruth is left without a husband. Not only is she left without a husband, her sister-in-law says, I'm not interested in hanging around any longer. I'm going back to my people. And Naomi says, what am I going to do other than go back to my people? And Ruth says to Naomi, I'm going to go with you and your people will be my people. Your God will be my God, the one true God. And as a result, she goes back to Bethlehem and she meets this man named Boaz who redeems her, marries her, provides for her. So you have this incestuous relationship with Tamar. You have a harlot in Rahab. You have Ruth, who is a foreigner. And yet, all three of these ladies find themselves in the beautiful weaving together of the story of Jesus Christ coming to this earth. We continue on and the scandal continues. You look at verse 6, Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Her name is Bathsheba. It's interesting in the scriptures here that she's simply referred to as the wife of of Uriah. The story is, you may know, is found in 2 Samuel 11. The story of Bathsheba, whose husband is Uriah. He is one of David's chosen men who's fighting on the front lines of the battle. David was staying home in the kingdom and sees Bathsheba and says, I want her. And he's counseled, he's told that one of your choice fighting men, Uriah, is her husband. And David says, I don't care. Bring her to me. And forcibly, David takes Bathsheba and rapes her. And she, several months later, is found to be with child. So David says, bring back Uriah. And he tries to cover up his mistakes. Uriah won't have anything to do with it. So David says, the only option I have at this point is to kill him. So David murders Uriah and then steps in to take Bathsheba as his wife. The child that had been conceived died. But then later, we see that Solomon. Solomon, who is, we've spent time together, church family, walking our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, the wisest man who ever lived. We find his words. That Solomon is the child that David and Bathsheba have together. And yet again, it comes through a scandalous situation. And then we encounter the fifth lady, Mary. Mary, the mother of Jesus. But if you know the story about Mary, Mary was betrothed to Joseph and 
was found to be with child. And it wasn't Joseph's child. In fact, we're told that the Holy Spirit was involved in this. And so Joseph is stuck in a situation. Does he continue to move forward with this pregnant, betrothed woman to himself, or does he just simply walk away? And there's some conversation, and an angel of the Lord appears and says, no, this child that she has is conceived of the Holy Spirit. This is the Christ child. We'll see that conversation a bit next week. But we encounter Mary, a teenage mother who's not married. Again, at this point, a scandalous situation. So when you look at this genealogy that unfolds, and if we had time, we could walk through the men who find themselves in this story, many of them as well, deeply flawed, deeply sin-ridden. And yet, what we see is God at work, even through the brokenness, even through the mess, to bring about the greatest hope in all the world. Which brings us to the question this morning of why. Why does God work it out that way? As I said to you, if we were drawing it out on a map, we would probably seek to bypass those things. You'd say, listen, we're not going to deal with the scandalous stories. I mean, we want someone who a king should come from. If I'm going to send my only son, I want him to come from the greatest people that are alive. I don't want any of the scandal to surround him. In fact, if you think about it, much of what goes on in our country, politically speaking, is scandal. Avoiding scandal or trying to catch people in scandal. Scandal is not a positive thing. It's not a good thing. And yet in the scriptures, that's exactly what God uses to bring about his son. So the question this morning, why? Why does God do that? Why does God allow that? Why would God send his son Jesus through situations and circumstances like what we just read? Why these five Ladies, why the scandalous stories? One, it reminds us of why Jesus came. Jesus came to this earth not because we were okay. Jesus came to this earth not because we were good. Jesus came to this earth not because things were going to work out. Jesus came to this earth because of sin. It's the reason for which the Father sent the Son to save His people from their sin. And so as we look at the storyline, the genealogy, what we see on display for everyone to look at is sin. Sinful decisions, sinful circumstances, scandal as a result of personal sin and corporate sin. We see that all wrapped up in Jesus' genealogy. But here's what I love. Here's the beauty in it. Into the sin, God works. Even as a result of the sin, God's plan is not derailed. His sinless Son 
comes to the earth. Even through a lineage of scandal and sin. Why does He come to save us from our sin? I think it's a great reminder to us as well that not only does He come to save us from our sin, but it's a reminder that no one is too far gone. No one is outside the bounds of Jesus being able to save them. The message of the gospel is that no one is too bad. And I think for us this morning, the story of Jesus' genealogy just puts that once again on display. You may have come in this morning and you think, Michael, there is absolutely no hope for me in a relationship with the Lord. And can I just tell you this morning... This part of Matthew chapter 1 simply says that's not true. That God is able to work in the lives of broken people to bring about His plan and His purpose. And God is able to save the worst that we could imagine. You are not too far gone. You are not beyond the reach of God's grace grabbing a hold of your life and transforming your heart this morning. And let me remind us, those of us who are gathered as believers, as we enter this season, there is not a person that you will interact with. Job, family, neighbor, where it's easy for us at times to think, oh, there's no hope for them. To recognize that there is hope for them. And that hope is found in Jesus Christ. In the scandal, in the sin, Jesus Christ is the answer. And for us this morning, that is what we are reminded of in this genealogy. That Jesus came to save us from our sin. And there is no one who is too far gone to be saved from their sin this morning. If you don't believe that. Just simply look at the story. Simply look this morning at the reality that Jesus Christ can save us. That He came to save us. And that no one of us is outside of His power to save us. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, let me just remind you and to remind me that if you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior prior to meeting Jesus, you were the scandal. You were the one lost in your sin. You were the one in need of redemption. You were the one whose life was a mess, and yet Jesus stepped in and took your life and turned it into one of the greatest messages that could be proclaimed. He stepped into the brokenness of your life, and He turned it into beauty. That is the reason that you're here this morning. If you're a follower of Jesus, as we celebrate Christmas, as we celebrate the birth of our Savior, we have to be reminded of that great truth. It's more than presents. It's more than Christmas trees. It's more than lights. It's more than grits, casserole, and cinnamon rolls. If you've never had grits, casserole, all of those things are wonderful, but there's one main thing 
that Christmas is about. It's about the reality that in the scandal and in the sin, in people's lives who were broken and who were a mess, that God still powerfully worked to bring about His Son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. The baby born in Bethlehem in a manger grew up the sinless Son of God who lived a perfect life, who took your sin and my sin on the cross, laid His life down to pay the debt that we owed as a result of our sin against a holy God. He was buried. But He didn't stay in the grave. He rose again on the third day. Securing salvation for us. Making it possible for us to be redeemed. For our brokenness to be turned into beauty. For our mess to be turned into a message. That is what we celebrate at Christmas. Let's pray this morning. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We're thankful this morning that even in a passage of Scripture riddled with name after name after name, that we see beauty on display. That we see brokenness turned into beauty. That we see the mess of lives turned into a message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I'm convinced this morning that as we gather, there are those here that have heard the story, who know what Christmas is all about, but they have never taken the step of placing their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Father, this morning my prayer is that today would be the day that they take that important step. Father, that today would be the day that they trust Jesus for their salvation. Today would be the day that their brokenness turns into beauty, that their mess turns into a message. Father, give them the strength, the courage, to simply respond by faith this morning. To call out to you. To confess that they are a sinner in need of a Savior. And that they believe that Jesus Christ can save them from their sin. Father, would you remind us who have already taken that step this morning of the beauty that transformed our lives. The great grace that we've received. The hope that we have found and the urgency 
that there are others who need to hear about it. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to stay seated, if you will, this morning. Give you just an opportunity this morning and next minute or so just to sit and to reflect. Reflect on the truth that's been presented today. In just a little bit, we're going to pass out the elements for us to be able to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. And before those go out, I want to say this to you. If you have taken the step of trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior, we invite you to grab as the trays are passed by, the cup, the bottom cup will have the bread in it, the top cup will have the juice in it, and we'll talk about those in just a minute. But if you've not taken that step of trusting in Jesus as your Savior, you have the opportunity right now to do that. If you've not done that and you don't take the opportunity to do that right now, we just simply ask you not to partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. The significance of what we are about to do, I think, is one of the most beautiful things that the church can do as we gather together, as we're reminded of Jesus' body that was broken for us, as His blood that was shed for us, that we as a church collectively at this time, celebrating Christmas in just a few days, will remember that the baby in the manger didn't stay in the manger. He went to the cross for us, laid his life down for us. And that's the reason this morning that we gather and we celebrate what his life, his death, his resurrection has made possible for us. So I want to pray once again, give you the opportunity this morning before the Lord to search your heart. If there's sin that needs to be confessed this morning, I want to encourage you to confess that to the Lord. If you need to take the step of trusting in Jesus as your Savior, you'll have an opportunity to do that in the next moments together. And then as the elements are passed out, I want you to hang on to those until everyone is served. And then I'll give further instructions as we take that together as a church family. Father, we love you. Let this moment not just be another thing to do. Let it be a time of self-reflection, a time of humility, a time of celebration of what Christ has done for us. Let it be a time of transformation for those who may take this step today to trust Jesus as their Savior. For it's in His name we pray. Amen.